NDP promised to dramatically improve long-term care. We're going to put in place a 10-year plan. How it could save lives and what it'll cost. Allegations of voter fraud against a liberal candidate. Information that no candidate would ever need. Social insurance number, health care number. The encrypted messages that raise a lot of questions. And a cliffhanger ending for a local movie theater. No one should be able to, to raise rent that much money. Why they're ready to close the curtain forever. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with breaking news tonight. A charge has now been laid in connection with a hoax at the Lynn Valley Care Center. It left the seniors' home dangerously short-staffed as COVID-19 was rapidly spreading. Our Grace Key is live outside the facility with more on the story. Grace, what have you learned? Yeah, 26-year-old Tamag Argtar was charged uh, on September 25th. Not a lot of information on Mr. Agtai, but we do know that he is from Vancouver. So he now faces one count of conveying false information with intent to injure. We do know that this is the same person who was arrested back in July but later released. So this hoax call was made to Lynn Valley Care Center in the early morning hours of March 8th, and it appeared to have come from Health authorities. Now, exactly what was said was unclear, but in a previous statement, Lynn, Cal uh, Lynn Valley officials said the call caused fear among residents and workers and staff were reluctant to come to work. Now, Lynn Valley Care Center in North Vancouver was home to Canada's first COVID death. Eggtie's next uh, court date is scheduled for August 1st. All right. Thanks for that. Grace Key reporting in North Vancouver for us. Now, NDP leader John Horgan is rolling out his first major campaign promise in Surrey today, capitalizing on the strong support he's getting for his government's COVID response. It's a $1.4 billion plan for long-term care, promising to limit the devastating impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic. Keith Baldry breaks down how the money will be spent and reaction from Horgan's opposition. In 2021, British Columbia will start building new long-term care facilities. Long-term care, it has been the centerpiece of BC's COVID-19 pandemic since the beginning. Our long-term care homes have seen almost 500 residents infected with the virus, and more than 150 have died from it. A second outbreak has been declared at Harrow Park Long-Term Care, where 10 residents have tested positive and one of them is in hospital. Today, the NDP pledged to spend $1.4 billion over 10 years to make these homes safer and more modern. I believe seniors in their latter years should have the dignity of one room with just them in it. That's a goal we're going to set. It's going to take us some time and John to make Horgan up for the backlog because of liberal neglect. But I believe that's a cause citizens. worth fighting for. We're going to increase wages for workers in the sector so that they can go to work confident that they're going to be able to feed their families. The NDP's political opponents put long-term care high on their priority list as well, but want action taken sooner. We need to be serious about how people in long-term care homes are living with the love, the respect, the dignity that they deserve. We need solutions and remedies now. We need to work on a seniors program that's going to bear fruit immediately. And John Horgan says improvements can't start fast enough. I think all British Columbians, when they hear that we're going to improve our long-term care facilities, we're going to give dignity back to seniors, they're saying, well, of course you will. Why haven't you done it already? 
All right, taking a look now at the COVID-19 numbers for our province, and we have 125 new cases after testing more than 9,700 people. That puts our positivity rate at about 1.3%. Total cases for BC now sit at 9,138. No new deaths, so that number holds at 234. 72 people are in hospital, that's up 3, 21 in ICU. 7,591 people are considered recovered, and that leaves us with 1,284 active cases and just over 3,200 people in isolation. Another American has been caught flouting B.C.'s cross-border COVID rules and has paid a heavy price. RCMP say September 27th, their maritime patrol came upon a cabin cruiser out of Bellingham in the Crescent Beach Channel. On board were a Washington State man and his Canadian girlfriend. The man had picked her up at a Surrey marina but didn't report his crossing and did not meet entry requirements under the Quarantine Act. He has been fined $1,000 sent back to the U.S. and he has to pay another 1000 to get his boat back. She has to self-isolate for two weeks. In the campaign now, an NDP candidate is making allegations of voter fraud against a Liberal candidate and now Elections BC is looking into it. The Delta North NDP candidate is accusing the Liberal candidate in the nearby Surrey Fleetwood riding of collecting personal information from voters in order to request mail-in voting packages. Richard Zussman reports. There was directions given. It is these screen grabs, now the center of an Elections BC investigation. This information could be used to vote on other people's behalf. We don't know if it did. We sincerely hope it did not. NDP candidate Ravi Kalon holding these WhatsApp messages showing an online conversation, including BC Liberal candidate Gary Thind in Surrey Fleetwood. Thind, an administrator in the group along with one other person. These pictures submitted as part of a complaint that Thind's campaign team was illegally trying to obtain social insurance numbers and driver's license numbers to request mail-in ballots for the upcoming election. It is therefore incredibly hard for us to believe that Gary Thind did not know about this instruction delivered to 100 people. The Liberal candidate saying in a statement it was a campaign volunteer who made a mistake. The supporter of the statement reads in question did not have a formal role in my campaign and will not be involved in my campaign going forward. It's been reported to Elections BC. They will make their determinations and we will of course respect them. And we do hope for a, a very quick response from Elections BC. More than 450,000 British Columbians have now ordered ballots so they can vote by mail. And Elections BC says you legally cannot order a ballot for someone other than yourselves. And if you receive a ballot in the mail that you did not order, contact Elections BC immediately. It's an offence uh, to request a vote by mail package uh, for someone else. Uh, on conviction of such, uh, of, of such an offence, you know, you're liable to uh, up to two years in jail. Mail-in ballots are starting to arrive at people's homes now, and there is some confusion. They look like this. No candidate names, just a place to write in your vote. A voter must either write the local candidate or just the name of the party. You're voting for your local MLA. You have to write the name of a party or candidate running in your local district. As for the investigation into the allegations against Thind, it's unclear when Elections BC may wrap it up. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson continued to pitch his plan to eliminate the provincial sales tax for a year. Wilkinson says small businesses need all the help they can get to survive the economic crunch caused by the pandemic. Taking small business to the point where it can survive 
is the main purpose for us taking a provincial sales tax down to zero for a year. It also gives everybody in British Columbia an immediate tax break that they can see right away, giving an average family $1,700 of tax relief in the first year. Four women have been added to the B.C. Green Party slate of candidates on Vancouver Island just ahead of the October 24th election. Sonia Firstenau announced the candidates for Oak Bay Gordon Head, Victoria Beacon Hill and Victoria Swan Lake and Saanich South. That's where the youngest candidate in the election will run. Kate O'Connor, who will turn 18 before the election date, has been shadowing Firstenau in the B.C. legislature. Let's go. I was so impressed with her. Uh, she came on board to my leadership campaign, took on a leadership role in that race, and has inspired me every single day that I've known her. Spoke of the difficult path young women often face as they enter politics, and that B.C. still does not have a gender balance at the legislature. She suspects the party will not be able to find candidates for all 87 ridings, but says the party has done remarkable work getting a campaign up and running in just 11 days. The man convicted of dangerous driving causing the death of a Vancouver doctor in 2015 has been sentenced to 18 months in jail. The victim's family has waited four and a half years for this day. And as Aaron MacArthur shows us, it was an emotional day in court for them. It was a split second that cost a man his life. Dr. Alphonsus Huey killed when his car was destroyed at 41st and Oak. It's been four and a half years, so a very long, torturous road. The man responsible for the collision is heading to jail. 39-year-old Ken Chung will spend 18 months behind bars. After a trial and an appeal and a Supreme Court challenge, Wednesday's sentence comes as little comfort to the victim's family. I just don't comprehend how the severity of the punishment matches the devastation that he caused. And I don't know what kind of message this is sending to our community. And Mr. Chung is paying a considerable price. Uh, 18 months jail, it's uh, less than the Crown was asking for, but anybody who thinks that's a light sentence, they should think to themselves, uh, would they like to go to jail for 18 months? Chung had a history of excessive speeding. His last ticket, three years after the fatal collision clocked at more than twice the speed limit in the city of Vancouver. Wednesday in court, he addressed the Hui family directly, bowing low and expressing his regret. My family has been asking for closure for far too long. It's been a death by a thousand paper cuts, three court systems, all because he didn't do the right thing. And admit from the start, I made a mistake. It was a really bad one, but I'm going to be a man and I'm going to step up, accept responsibility for this, plead guilty, and do my time. Chung will also face a five-year driving prohibition after he gets out of jail. He will also have to pay more than $800,000 awarded in a civil suit. He was led away from court in handcuffs. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A Coquitlam man who was connected to a number of Metro Vancouver churches is now facing a string of new sex assault charges. Back in July, six charges of sexual assault were laid against 75-year-old Raymond Howard Gillardy. Since then, a number of other victims have come forward, leading to seven additional counts of sexual assault and sexual exploitation. Gillardy's victims were young men or teenage boys at the time of the alleged offenses. 
The Coquitlam RCMP Sex Crimes Unit believes there may be more victims, and they'd like to speak with potential victims or witnesses who attended the Glad Tidings Church in Vancouver and the Glad Tidings Summer Camp in Seashelt in the 1970s and 80s. Strata owners in a bitter battle with their neighbor finally get some satisfaction. The owner of a townhouse who used it as an illegal hostel has put the property up for sale. How residents are responding in less than two minutes. Gentlemen, is, I hate to raise my voice, but... I the most jaw-dropping moment at the first U.S. presidential debate and the backlash coming up on the news hour. And Global News goes one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Henry examining the other health crisis and what she would do to stop opioid deaths. That's coming up later. Right now, though, the notorious North Vancouver townhouse, formerly run as the illegal Oasis Hostel, is now up for sale as ordered by a B.C. Supreme Court judge. The order came because owner Emily Yu failed to pay more than $50,000 in legal bills racked up by her strata council in their long legal battle over the unit. But as John Waugh reports, there are still doubts that Yu will allow the sale to proceed. For years, neighbors say they cringed at the sound of so-called guests walking towards this North Vancouver townhouse. I've been kept up many nights until one in the morning. Uh, it's just, it shouldn't be this way. They could soon be hearing the foot traffic of an open house. What was once the notorious Oasis Hostel is now officially on the market. We've reached a point where the court has authorized a court bailiff to forcibly sell her property and that's what's happening right now. The owner Emily Yu did not respond to Global News's request for comment. The property once advertised as a 15-bed hostel is now being sold as a regular three-bed, three-bath strata unit. We expect we will find a qualified buyer very soon and it may be that this is back before Mr. Justice Davies by year end. Now with the property being listed at $965,000, part of the proceeds of that sale will first go to what is still owed on the mortgage. Then more than $95,000 will go to the province of British Columbia. And after that, more than $52,000 will then be paid out to the strata. I hope it it sells quickly and that we can actually get reimbursed for the monies we've paid out. But neighbors say after a legal battle spanning more than three years, they worry you won't go quietly. She's got all kinds of excuses and she says that the strata is, is lying and it's fraud. If she's not cooperative with the bailiff, uh, the next step will be for me to apply to the court and have her evicted. Whatever happens next, neighbors say the listing is an important step in ending what they describe as a legal nightmare they never thought would last this long. John Hua, Global News. Up next, the tragic end to a young Indigenous man's life. You know, this is unacceptable that, you know, this could happen to a child in care. Why loved ones say the system failed him. Also tonight, can you guess what Americans were Googling as the presidential debate wore on last night? Traffic is steady over here in both directions at the Patello Bridge, but on the new Westminster side, keep in mind Front Street is closed from end to end. Use Columbia or Royal Avenue instead. From your home or car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge.
Anger is growing after an indigenous teen was found dead inside an Abbotsford group home earlier this month. His body was not discovered until four days after he was reported missing. Several indigenous leaders and advocates are calling for action and accountability. And as Nadia Stewart reports, parents of other children in care fear their child could be next. We're calling for an independent investigation external. Chief Judy Wilson with the Union of BC Indian Chiefs is among a chorus of voices concerned an investigation by Abbotsford police into the death of a 17-year-old in care was inadequate. It's just horrendous to, to have the loss of such a young life. The teen was in the care of a delegated Aboriginal agency through a consent agreement. In an email to Global News, Abbotsford police say the youth was reported missing on September 15th by a group care home worker. A missing person investigation was launched. Police say several officers completed multiple searches day and night until the youth was located. Officers interviewed several friends and family members. In the end, he was found dead in a closet inside the care home. Advocates say the family was told by investigators the teen's death was deemed a suicide and there would be no further investigation. Her concern was, how did you come up with that decision? How did you come up with that determination when you didn't even interview me as the mom? The Ministry of Children and Family Development is not commenting, citing privacy concerns. Advocates say the representative for children and youth has told them she will investigate. My greatest fear is that my child is going to be the next ministry-related casualty. For Catherine, this story affects her personally. She has a teenage daughter in care. It's why we cannot identify her. She worries the system is reactive, not proactive, and any action comes much too late. Let's have an inquiry and look at all of the things that are failing to no one person's fault, but look at the system and figure out what the what the flaws are before I'm the parent on the news saying my child died in ministry care because no one was able to help her. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Now that story leads us into the reason school kids around BC and across Canada were wearing orange today for the seventh annual Orange Shirt Day. It's a day to remember the brutal injustice and failure of Canada's residential school system. And as Brad McLeod shows us, the message is simple. Every child matters. You may have sent your children to school with an orange shirt. And the understanding that something very bad happened to Indigenous children sometime in the past. But the damage done to the estimated 150,000 people forced to attend residential schools is still being felt to this day. My grandmother attended for 10 years, all of her 10 children including my mother for 10 years and myself for one. It was Phyllis Webstad's story which inspired Orange Shirt Day when she was six and sent to residential school in Williams Lake. I chose a, a shiny orange shirt for my first day. She was immediately stripped of her clothes. September 30th was chosen because it's the time of year in which children were taken from their homes to residential schools. A video was produced this year and shared on the City of Victoria's Facebook page. In spite of the government's deliberate attempt to extinguish us, we stand proudly in our moccasins today. There were 139 residential schools across Canada from 1831 to 1996. Places of abuse like starvation to sexual assault and children forbidden to speak their languages and practice their traditions. 
I am a survivor from coaching. And uh, the, it, it still hurts. Born Short Day is this one opportunity when everybody can come together to reclaim their identity and their lost traditions. And it's time for me to, to release some of that anger, some of that pain, by allowing people to see what's inside here. The federal heritage minister just reintroduced legislation to try and make September 30th a national day for truth and reconciliation for federally regulated workers. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. And straight ahead, the doctor managing the chaos of the opioid crisis. It's been very, very challenging to find that balance. Dr. Henry, one-on-one -on -one with Sophie coming up, examining the best ways to handle the problem. Also ahead, the biggest missed opportunity in last night's presidential debate. 60 years of bringing you the stories that shape our history. 60 years of Global BC. In partnership with Connect Hearing, your hearing is important. Take care of it. Good evening. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind, though, overnight maintenance has you down to a single lane in both directions between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $5 million, plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 99 and the Massey Tunnel. Google data is showing a huge spike in, quote, move to Canada as a search term shortly after the presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden started last night. Interest in our country was highest among people in Oregon, but Americans in Vermont, Colorado, Washington, Minnesota were also very curious about a move up north. Turns out New Zealand also came up as an alternative escape plan. Sure happens nice every there too yeah well sure. just just how bad was the trump biden face-off the presidential debates commission is now saying it will make changes to the format that's after an uncomfortable 90-minute political brawl that's being described as a train wreck and an embarrassment a source tells CBS News the Commission on Presidential Debates plans to issue strict new rules in the coming days that could include cutting off a candidate's microphone after a chaotic first presidential debate. The left, will you Who shut is your, up, man? Listen, well, let me ask my question. Well, I'll, I'll ask Joe. I, 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 the individual no, I, mandate was the most unpopular aspect of Obamacare. Both presidential candidates are back on the campaign trail. Democratic nominee Joe Biden discussed Tuesday's debate during an Amtrak tour from Ohio to Pennsylvania. The president of the United States conducting himself the way he did, I think it was just a, a national embarrassment. Meanwhile, President Trump hits Minnesota for a fundraiser and campaign rally. By every measure, we won the debate easily last night. I think he was very weak. He looked weak. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill also weighed in. Looked like a brawl to me. Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Least educational debate of any presidential debate I've ever seen. During the debate, the president refused to denounce white supremacy and even seemed to issue a shout out to a far right group called the Proud Boys. That move caused backlash. Now the president is walking that back. I don't know who the Proud Boys are. I mean, you'll have to give me a definition because I really don't know who they are. I can only say they have to stand down, let law enforcement do their work. My message to the Proud Boys and every other white supremacist group is cease and desist. 
A CBS News battleground tracker poll shows a huge majority of debate watchers felt annoyed by it, and an even larger percentage of viewers said the overall tone was negative. Deborah Alfarone, CBS News, The White House. Since the overdose crisis was declared a provincial public health emergency in 2016, more than 5,000 British Columbians have died from drug toxicity. And after a brief slowdown, the COVID-19 pandemic has added fuel to that deadly fire. I sat down with Dr. Bonnie Henry to talk about the crisis and the province's way forward. It feels like we've backtracked somehow. Um, where did we, where did we fall down here? It took us some time to realize this, but the measures that we put in place to try and protect people from the COVID pandemic really had a hugely negative effect on people who use drugs. And I think another really important thing um, that has been really challenging is the, is the separation, the physical distancing, the working from home. And they're now separated in ways from people that they would normally be with to use drugs. And they are, are dying alone, unfortunately. Clearly, um, people who are living in the downtown east side are absolutely being horrendously affected by this crisis and by the last few months and the issues that we've um, had to deal with. But they're not alone. This is something that is happening in communities everywhere in BC. You've been um, quite vocal in calling for uh, better access to safe supply, um, decriminalization. I wonder what those two things mean to you. So the, the two things are that you mentioned, one is pharmaceutical alternatives, as I call them, to the, uh, to the toxic street drug supply. More than ever, that is important right now. The measures that have put in place uh, that have restricted access around borders and travel and movement of goods has also affected the street drug supply. And the toxicity that we're seeing is just things we could not have imagined. The other issue around decriminalization, I, I think there's a lot of misinformation about what that means. Does that mean there's just going to be drugs everywhere? And it's, you know, and it's not about legalization of drugs, although that, I believe, is a, is a measure that we should be considering, as we have with cannabis. But right now, it's about people. It's about not um, putting people who use drugs into the criminal justice system. And, and you know, many people who are using drugs are doing it to, to address deep-seated, deep-rooted pain. And we need to address those issues in a way that supports people, um, not putting them in jail. It seems like safe supply is the first, first step. The harm reduction is the perhaps most important pillar to get the other pillars. I believe that. I believe that, you know, we have to keep people alive. Um, there's no chance of recovery if you're not alive. Um, and we can't lose faith in people. Nobody, you know, nobody thinks, I want to be addicted to drugs. I want to you know, have this control my life. How do we balance fighting the opioid crisis and, you know, I, I guess, um, taking care of, of the concerns of people in these neighborhoods? It's been very, very challenging to find that balance. So it has to do with addressing poverty. It has to do with addressing housing mental health supports, as well as substance use supports. Mm -hmm. And it's complex. Uh, and then uh, every month we get the, the um, overdose death numbers. And you, since COVID began and you've been doing your regular press briefings, uh, you've always 
mentioned it during your briefing, um, and it always seems very personal to you mm -hmm. when you talk about it. I'm wondering, why is it so personal to you? It's personal because I have met with families who've had loved ones who've died. I've met with people who use drugs, who've lost friends, who've lost their community, um, who see this crises playing out in their lives in ways that um, that really uh, are, touch me. And I do believe we have ways of, of working with people and supporting people and that we can make a difference in people's lives. Amazing stuff. And more of that online. Yes, you can get the full 25-minute interview online. All right, cover a lot of ground. Good stuff. And we will too, including that cliffhanger for a local movie theater. No one should be able to, to raise rent that much money. The owners and everyone else upset the curtain is closing forever at the Rialto. Also tonight, a political passing of the torch in the 1970s and how we're still living with the results today. Do you have another one coming at you? Well, I don't. Oh, no, yeah, no. I, well, I don't really because I'm really, you know, any football fan is kind of shattered that things have had mm -hmm. to grind to a halt at least a little bit here in the NFL now. Squires uh, joining us with sports. And well, I know fantasy football players are a bit confused of this as well. Like, I don't know what's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. The uh, NFL says Sunday's game between Tennessee and Pittsburgh will now be moved to either Monday or Tuesday after uh, three Titan players and five staff members tested positive for COVID-19. Now, here's the thing. The Titans are going to need some extra time to play this game because they aren't allowed to practice. They can't go to their facility until Saturday because of the infections, and the Steelers can keep on practicing. That hardly seems fair. Okay, Jays and Rays, and they put their ace out there, Young Jin Ryu. But it was chase the ace day for the Tampa Bay Rays. It's been a good week for Tampa Bay. They win the Stanley Cup. Now they're knocking the Jays out of the first round of the playoffs. Mike Zanino with a two-run homer there. Bo Bichette had a rough day. Two errors. Here's another one. Well, this was the second of the two. Oop. That keeps the inning alive. Two out. Now the bases are loaded, and that means Hunter Renfro can go all the way. Grand Slam breakfast. That's seven. Slam home run. The Jays were only in the playoffs, of course, because they allowed 16 teams in this year. But they are out almost as quickly as it started. Uh, Kirby Puckett. They need Kirby Puckett's statue to come to life in Minnesota. I don't know what it is with the Twins, but they just can't play in the playoffs. Carlos Correa with a solo shot here for Houston. They won the first game. It's a best of three. Ryan Presley would get the final out. Minnesota has now lost 18 straight playoff games back to 2004. And as I said yesterday, those are all different teams, even though they're wearing the Minnesota uniform. But something about that Minnesota uniform isn't working in the postseason anymore. Jeannie Bouchard, 168th ranked in the world. She's having herself a pretty good French Open so far. This is second round action against Daria Gavrilova. They split the first two sets, but then Bouchard would win the third set and reach the third round at the French Open for the first time in six years. Alex Kanek Liepert is the captain of the Vancouver Giants, and right now he can't play hockey, and he doesn't know when the Western Hockey League season will begin. But that doesn't mean he's just exclusively sitting around and waiting. Well, he actually is waiting, but he's waiting while he's waiting. Ah, you'll see what I mean. 
Like every other major junior hockey player in Canada, Vancouver Giants defenseman Alex Kanek Liepert is anxiously awaiting word on when and if he'll be playing hockey again. After August here, it was pretty much a, um, a reset, and uh, it's like you're having a double offseason. So. And that offseason has gone on way longer than normal. Had COVID not hit, this would have been week two of the Western Hockey League's regular season. Instead, Kanek Liepert is finding ways to keep busy on the ice and just as importantly, off it. How the Giants captain is doing that might surprise you. Good afternoon. Hey there. Instead of serving up outlet passes to his Giants teammates, he's serving up the restaurant special of the day at Pat Quinn's in Tawasson Springs. And his attention to detail every bit as precise as the effort he puts on the ice. He's doing a great job at Pat Quinn's. Uh, he's going to make a little extra money for himself. He's going to learn something about dealing with people, networking. He's made a great impression there. Uh, so he's doing nothing but uh, not only selling himself, but but doing a great job for our organization as well. I don't, I don't know who, um, who I'm scared of more, uh, if it's uh, our coaches and the Giants or if it's the chefs and the Pat Quinn's there. But uh, no, I mean, it, it's, it's nice. It's... It's kind of the same mentality. It's uh, there. You got a team, and you got to take care of what you got to take care of, and uh, do your job. So yeah, it's good. To the point, Kanek Liepert. This is Kanek Liepert's final year of junior hockey. He'll once again wear the C for the Vancouver Giants whenever the season starts. Until it does, he'll be offering up leadership of a different kind, as in menu options. Definitely have to be the uh, the modern bowl. The uh, Nice tuna poke bowl. That's uh, that's kind of my thing. I love those. With a modern bowl on order, Jay Janowar, Global Sports. Well, I hope Jay tipped him well. Well, I'm sure he did. He's, he's, <laughs> Jay is known as a huge tipper. Restaurants yeah. invite him over just for that reason. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> right this way, Mr. Janauer. <laughs> All right, thanks, Squire. Well, BC politics is never boring, especially not in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Up next, the very first NDP government in the province and the Bennett dynasty makes a comeback. Global BC 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. industry is mourning the loss of Helen Reddy, who shot to fame with her song I Am Woman in the 1970s. It hit number one on the Billboard chart in 1972 and earned her a Grammy. She also acted, starring in Disney's Pete's Dragon. In recent years, Reddy struggled with kidney problems and dementia. She died at her home in Los Angeles at the age of 78. Ah, the 1970s. An amazing time. Politically, it was a decade that saw many changes in B.C.'s legislature. The W.A.C. Bennett dynasty came to an end. The NDP formed its first government in the province, and by the end of the decade, a familiar name was back in office. Keith Baldry now with how the decade set the scene for the polarizing politics we still see today. You 
are going to form the new government of British Columbia, is that not, would you not say that with a small amount of modest pride at this moment, sir, five minutes to ten this election night in 1972? Well, since it's you, Jack Webster, I'll say yes. <laughs> There are elections and then there are historic elections. The 1972 B.C. election certainly ranks in the latter category as it banished a political dynasty after 20 years in power and ushered in a political party that finally tasted victory. No, I'm not surprised. Uh, it, uh, I felt it a week ago. I, as a matter of fact, I felt inside me it was going to happen. The NDP government under Premier Dave Barrett may not have lasted long, a little more than three years. But its list of accomplishments is long, and many of them continue to impact our lives to this day. But to see us uh, as we really are, not to be, uh, be uh, not to establish the feeling that we're somehow different or we're better or worse, uh, we're, we're just ordinary people, and that's the way I want it to be. The Agricultural Land Reserve, ICBC, the Labor Code, a legislature question period, the lowering of the drinking age to 19, and banning the strap in schools, just a few of the Barrett's government's lasting legacies. They take me aside and they look around and say, you know, Dave, I really like that pharmacare, Dave. And Dave, you've done a good thing with the land. And Dave, I like the men come. And Dave, I like the daycare. But gosh, Dave, be careful. I can't stand socialism. <laughs> but by the end of 1975, the NDP's dream was over. A new Bennett had arrived on the scene. Bill, son of longtime Premier W.A.C. Bennett, and he defeated Barrett in that year's election. So, Dave, rest easy tonight, because you know now that we're not going to end men come. We're not going to sink the Marguerite. Rest easy, David. Sleep well, David. Good night, David. Bill Bennett achieved political success because he put the so-called Free Enterprise Coalition back together, wooing three former B.C. Liberal MLAs into the social credit fold and making them star cabinet ministers. Trials are not carried out and conducted and the accused condemned within the media. For the rest of the decade, Bennett solidified his party's hold on power, steering it right and maintaining strong ties to the business community. He would win another close election in 1979, and B.C. became increasingly polarized. I care about you. I care about this province. And tonight I'm happy. Thank you. But the decade that lay ahead would prove to be politically fractious and explosive and ultimately plant the seeds of the destruction of the Social Credit Party that rebuilt itself in the tumultuous 70s. Keith Baldry, Global News. Amazing seeing some of that old footage, for sure. And uh, tomorrow night, we're going to take a look at the crime of the decade. When a teenage girl went missing, no one could imagine the agony that she would have endured. The Abby Drover story is next in our look back on the decades. Looking forward to that. All right, wow. uh, final word on the weather from mm. Kasha. Mm, hazy skies prevail for tomorrow. It's also going to be mostly cloudy on our Thursday. Uh, still uncertain as to what the winds are going to be doing on Friday. There's a chance we could be clearing. All right, thanks very much, Kasha, and thank you for watching. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.